Welcome to this special episode of the Citizens Report, where today I'm going to interview Dr. Peter Brain. Welcome, Peter. Welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. As viewers of the Citizens Report know, the Citizens Party is campaigning for a national bank in this climate of the coronavirus uh, economic uh, troubles in Australia. Um, there's, there's definitely been a shift taking place, a political shift in the way people are suddenly thinking about the economy thanks to the coronavirus. It's, it's shown up the uh, vulnerabilities in the economy, especially our dependence on uh, imports. Um, I argue, of course, that other events would have also shown up such a vulnerability like a war or a global financial crisis. Um, so we're campaigning for a national bank that can invest in infrastructure and in industry. And in doing so, we're going against the neoliberal consensus that's taken hold for the last 30 years in Australia. Um, and uh, the, what I find going around the country is that I get to talk to people of a certain age um, who, uh, who have lived long enough to remember when Australians thought differently about the economy. Um, so I've invited Peter on here today because, Peter, you lived through the transformation of the Australian economy. You got to assess the changes that took place as an economist. Um, you participated in the debates that happened over those years. And I wanted to talk to you to get your perspective on um, what I would like to call this interview, taking stock of where Australia went wrong. Right. How do we get to where we are now and what can we do to change it? So with that introduction, um, Peter, just for the benefit of the viewer, just give us a, a brief overview of your career. Oh, uh, my career, I started at, uh, after finishing my PhD, I started at uh, Melbourne University in the early 70s and we set up a uh, economic uh, forecasting and analysis project where uh, we got uh, a lot of people to give us a lot of money to build, build big models of the economy. Uh, the models were very empirical based. Uh, that was going against the flavour that was the developing at the time was that uh, models were only acceptable if they showed uh, textbook, if you like, neoclassical neo textbook outcomes. Right. Whereas my my top my models were empirical based and the the outcomes were where the uh, data took them, so we uh, we immediately fell foul of the um, developing hedge money of the neo uh, uh, so called CGE models, computerized general equilibrium models, which basically um, simply they were data based, but only data based in terms of defining a structure of the economy with very little or no uh, estimation of behavioural relationships. They are all imposed by economic theory, uh, which I thought was ridiculous and said so. Uh, there was a big fight at Melbourne University over the, between, uh, between me and the neoliberals and our computerised general equilibrium. I, I decided to leave. I uh, took the money and the um, uh, the intellectual property and started the National Institute of Economic and Industry Research, 
uh, which still exists to this, this day. That was in uh, 1984. Oh, so we're talking, you're coming up to um, 40 years. That's correct. So um, I want to ask a question now that is more broad um, along the lines of what our campaign is, but then we'll go back to some of, more, some more of the history because I want to expand on that. But what's your general view of a National Development Bank? Uh, I think to... Uh, to uh, the general view is this, is that, first of all, let us take perhaps the most successful economy of all time, which is the Chinese economy, closely followed by economies like um, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, and the Scandinavian economies. Uh, not that um, so much uh, the living standards they've achieved, but in terms of the speed at which they achieve them, yeah. Um, there's only a technical upper limit you can go uh, in terms of living standards. And once you reach near US levels, uh, then you, you fall back with the pack. And certainly that's uh, um, South Korea, um, Japan and Taiwan achieved that very quickly. And the Chinese, of course, are on the are well and truly on that path. They are now the they're about 18% in bigger than the US economy, 18 to 20%. They pass the US economy when you correct it, when you measure uh, economic uh, GDP in, in PPP or purchasing power parity terms, not market exchange rates, which are ridiculous. Yep. But when you use the proper measure for measuring real costs between countries, China now is about 20% bigger than the US. Uh, and rapidly pulling ahead. So you've got to look at what uh, they do uh, and other countries that use the same model. And they take the view that uh, the neoliberal approach is sort of let the market rip, rip, don't interfere, let capital fall into relative returns, uh, that uh, the best relative returns and that will be the best optimum outcome. Uh, well, that's nonsense because as these countries realize, the best return any given day may be investing in housing stocks, driving up house prices, which yeah. only give you low productivity and inequality of incomes. So you've got to interfere in the market to protect those uh, strategic areas of the economy, making sure that they get the capital necessary to invest so that over time you have a far better outcome because you are not you're not you're not allowing short-term distorted uh, uh, outcomes for profitability to distort to distort your financial allocation you keep money flowing into infrastructure you keep fun money flowing into industries that are emerging on the world economy that you want to be part of yep. you keep money flowing in to those industries which you currently have a, a competitive advantage uh, so that they can build scale exports and drive your economy. And this is what it's it's not rocket science, it's simple. Yeah. So the Chinese have endless arrays of financial institutions, as did the other countries, uh, to ensure that capital flowed into those strategic areas uh, to ensure over time a far better outcome compared to the neoliberal, um, just let capital flow where it wants.
Yeah. Uh, so, yes, I'm all in favour of a national bank. In fact, a lot of them. You could have different specialised banks yep. specialising in different areas like the Chinese have. Uh, but um, uh, because when you do that, you, you, you get expertise being focused. Uh, you, 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 they get to know their industry. They get to know yep. the industry's place in the world. And they can make very good financial lending and equity investment decisions that will, you know, um, produce good outcomes. You, I'm glad you said that because you, you went through that description of China because you, um, as an economist, got to, like I said in the introduction, look at the economy of Australia before these changes when we did have more intervention in Australia in, into, into the um, economy. And in those days, um, Peter, going back to the uh, mid-60s, manufacturing was a much greater part of the Australian economy. And, of course... You know, it, it does its, the, the biggest dent in the neoliberal consensus today, I would argue, is a much of a very widespread acknowledgement that we need more manufacturing in Australia. Right. It's, it's this has been the topic of the coronavirus um, uh, panic. So in those days when we had more manufacturing, what I want to ask is what in what government policies um, facilitated that? Which of them were successful in your view and which weren't? Well, after the Second World War, we started with, we built manufacturing on barrier protection, quotas and tariffs. Now, in the early days, that was quite appropriate. But of course, we, we, what we, we, we came to the early 70s when that, that was a very blunt instrument and we had to change. Uh, unfortunately, it, it's quickly got it got interpreted as tearing down what mm -hmm. is and replacing them with nothing. Uh, I had a brief run from about eighty four to uh, ninety four where we I was active with the unions uh, in uh, developing a lot of industry development plans, which was designed uh, to substitute for the the uh, the uh, crass barrier and tariff protection. But give them give industry the necessary level of incentives and protection, if you like, in general terms, so they would be willing to invest and expand. They were uh, that was quite successful. The factor F scheme, uh, export schemes, all that investment allowance schemes, uh, export marketing schemes, that sort of stuff, and they were very successful. And even I remember a book written by one of the leading neoliberals at the time said. Uh, the manufacturing export experience, uh, 1985 to 1990, was a miracle. 1985 to 1999, uh, nine, so not 1990, 2000. That that uh, right. was those echo effects along the, the way. Uh, so it was a it was a miracle the way that we managed to drive manufacturing industry uh, through changing the um the if you like the industry policy incentives so they were more rational efficient and effective then of course we had a change of government and the how government when they came in in 1997 they came in in 1996 but 1997 uh they axed a lot of those programs manufacturing exports uh, still grew for another few couple of few years through echo effects 
And then it started to go backwards uh, and it would have led to disaster, except then we had the mining boom starting in 2004. So some people say another sign of the lucky country. Uh, the, the, the issue that we face is that, um, uh, is that uh, it's it now, I suppose if you're a, a neoliberal critic, you'd say, well, you know, the, mi the mining boom did give us enough to uh, come through and, you know, we're not, well, the, the economy didn't fall apart. Uh, the issue now, of course, is, is that a sensible way to go forward? And there's a number of problems with just continuing as to what we did in the past. The first obvious thing is, is that uh, the China is going to become, obviously, the biggest economy in the world. It's now flexing its muscles and wants to be recognised, increasingly recognised as a world hegemon. Uh, and uh, that's going to pose a lot of difficulty to us, given the difference in the in the uh, types of um, our political systems and our values and all those sorts of things. So uh, going on into the future, as we've done in the past, does not seem very smart to me. The other thing is, is that there's no conflict with Scandinavian Norwegians proved very, very uh, uh, efficiently there is no conflict between mining and manufacturing. Right. What they did with their mining boom, which is far more intense than Australia, bigger mining boom relative to the size of the economy, they strapped the manufacturing, of course they controlled, they didn't just let the miners just do what they want, they regarded the, the resources theirs and leased the operating licence to the miners, make sure they captured a, a fair lick of the gross surplus back into general coffers and use the general coffers to fund manufacturing industry policy, to bring them up to world scale efficiency so they could get a lot of the support work going into the mining expansion and built up an extremely, also built up an extremely effective mining services uh, sector to export services to, to around the world. The arithmetic of all that is very simple. If you're going to expand mining by five percentage points, and you also want to hold or even increase mining uh, 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 manufacturing by a few percentage points, then something's got to give. And in the in the Norwegian case, it was the finance sector. The finance sector, in our, the share of, GD, of finance GDP in our economy is about 10%, yeah. uh, which is a no-no according to the OECD. The economy, uh, once you get up to that sort of levels, the impact on, of the finance sector on productivity growth is very detrimental. In other words, it holds back your productivity growth because you're scattering resources into low productive areas, you know, house building and yeah. consumer spending. Uh, whereas the Norwegians said, nope, we're going to control the finance sector to the extent necessary to create the resources so that manufacturing can grow with um, mining. Whereas we did the opposite. We just, the, the, gap, the gap, we not only kill manufacturing because of mining, we killed it because we let the finance sector grow so fast. 
which by definition will kill it. Well, that's that's a good insight, and um, we like to uh, highlight this chart that shows the the, uh, the the bank lending in that period as well went from thirty percent lending to uh, mortgages and seventy percent to business of all types to today. It's the opposite. It's, yeah, uh, we might we might as well just nationalise and set a computer to give out the home loan. <laughs> that's, that's right. Um, let's hope some bankers hear that. They're useless. They, they, they certainly are. Um, and I, I'm, I'm glad you said that about Norway. I, I, I wasn't aware of that and that factor with the with the financial uh, system, because certainly here, you're right, finance, the financial sector is the biggest part of the Australian economy, um, and it definitely has come at the expense of manufacturing. Well, also, when you control the finance sector through a mining boom, you can control your exchange rate and keep it closer to relative cost parity so you don't kill off your manufacturing sector. Well, we just let through 2012 to 2016, just let the exchange rate rip to buggery and, uh, and uh, you know, did a lot of damage. So... Um, 2010, 2016, yeah. What role did infrastructure investment play in supporting industry? Did we... Was there a... Was there a oh, no, infrastructure investment was a big failure. Uh, uh, the the um, the rundown infrastructure investment started in the early eighties. Yep. Um, uh, partly, I think, because uh, we had a we had Labor governments coming in after a long period of of um, uh, conservative rule in the states and the nation, and um, the. Uh, I think the view was at the time uh, that the high levels of infrastructure, which were uh, developed to keep economy growing at a pretty fast clip, uh, that the infrastructure spending was a good source of funds for social spending. So there was a big, uh, a, 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 a fairly brisk rundown infrastructure spending as a percentage of GDP. Uh, which really continued until, you know, 2008, 2009. Uh, you know, so infrastructure was a big failure. Uh, in my view, there wasn't yep. nowhere near enough, and it, it's contributed to our massive problems today of congestion. I mean, just think today what Melbourne would have been be like if they had built very fast trains to the regional centres and a, 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 um, a, a, a rail ring road going around and all, yep. everybody could link up. We had, we had Metro 1 finished and Metro 2 finished. Uh, this Melbourne economy would be substantially more productive and effective and people's lifestyles would be much more uh, satisfactory and they wouldn't be wasting hours travelling uh, with the destruction that has on productivity and home life. So all we had to do to do that was to keep the level of infrastructure as a percent of GDP constant around 1980, early, 90, mid, early to mid-1980 levels, and we would have achieved it, but we didn't. All right, well, just a um, couple of things uh, further uh, before we wrap up. With the National Bank to invest in the way we've talked about, what's your sense 
in the, the analysis you do of Australia's industrial potential now? Uh, in the, the sense, well, if you just look at manufacturing, manufacturing's performance over the last 10, 10 um, 15 years has been quite um, poor, uh, growing less than GDP. Uh, the, the reason for that is when you look at the sector is quite self-evident. Sectors to grow naturally, if you like, um, in terms of an economy, must have enough cash flow and in, uh, to invest in maintaining their capital stock and increasing their capital stock in line with the overall growth in the economy. The hitch to manufacturing and loss of capacity, of which the motor vehicle is an obvious example, yeah. over the last 15 years has greatly weakened the capacity of the manufacturing sector to invest to grow the sector. In fact, the, the, it, in some years, they only get enough money just simply to hold the capital stock or even stop it from falling back. And the capital stock, of course, determines capacity. Right. Uh, so the hitch to manufacturing, which, which you've allowed to be inflicted on the sec sector, which started with the, as I said, with the withdrawal of assistance in the late 90s, uh, all the way through the mining boom and the high exchange rate with nothing trying to ameliorate the effects of the manufacturing sector, have created a sector which is almost now incapable of uh, growing by its bootstraps. The only way it's going to break through this is an exogenous hit to the investable funds to allow them to invest at a higher level productively uh, to grow, to accelerate the growth of the sector. A national bank would be a very important component in achieving that. And do you think Australia could get some of its um, vigour back in manufacturing with the support of a national bank? Uh, of, yes, of course. Of course, there's a lot of innovative people out there uh, and uh, uh, a bit of help, I think, we'll see what miracles can be performed. Yeah. And we saw that, you know, with the coronavirus and the the building of the, the, the ventilators and all that sort of stuff, yeah. that uh, when people are given a tough target but uh, supported to achieve that, they can. And, you know, the message... The message from the, uh, the, the, you know, people like China and you know, the others is that you can establish competitive advantage in any industry if you're willing to invest to the extent, regulate and, you know, do anything else that's necessary in R&D and everything else uh, to achieve those objectives. You just got to make up what the mind you want to do. And as long as it's rational, has some bearing on the natural competitive advantage of the economy around it. It's not a, that's not the, pre, uh, the dominant, but it's one of, obviously, you want to be sensible. Yeah. Uh, but if you make the decision sensibly, then success purely depends on going for it. Well, Peter, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today on the Citizens Report. That's a, that's a very high, uh, high note to end on, very optimistic. We'll try and get some members of parliament to watch this and um, get that sense of vision back of what's possible because our argument is instead of sucking our thumbs and whining about China taking us over, um, I think you've expressed it well. Let's look at what they do that's successful and why aren't we doing that?
And one thing exactly. They do, That's the message. They back their industry. Uh, let's back China, out. China, China is going to become dominant, and the only way you can do that is offset that by building up your own economy and social system by using the same instruments. All right. Well, thanks very much again, Peter. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.